Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We are excited to have Dr. Matthew DiGennaro as the guest for today's episode. His laboratory at Florida International University studies the molecular genetics of mosquito host detection and the vector ecology of Aedes aegypti. During his postdoctoral training at Rockefeller University with Leslie Vosshall, he used the first mosquito mutant to study behavior in yellow fever mosquito, Aedes aegypti. His work has explored how mosquitoes sense human sweat, choose a host, and avoid repellents like DEET. Matt's current goal is to identify the critical olfactory receptors that mosquitoes need to find humans and use these genes to identify new attractants and repellents. Matt, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you so much, Anita. Matt, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? Well, I'm originally from New York. I was born in the Bronx. I did most of my graduate and postdoctoral training in New York City, and I moved to Miami to Florida International University five years ago to start my laboratory of tropical genetics. Very cool. And so you're working with mosquitoes. Yeah. So my lab is trying to use genetics to solve problems in the tropical and subtropical world. So mosquitoes are a big problem and they're the main focus of my lab. That's very exciting. How and when did you get interested in working with mosquitoes? So I was working as a developmental geneticist in New York and just finishing my PhD and looking for a postdoc. And I wanted to study neurobiology. So I interviewed with Leslie Vosshall at Rockefeller University, who was known at the time for identifying the olfactory receptors in Drosophila. So she was really big in insect behavior and olfaction. And when I interviewed with her, I was pretty surprised. She said to me that she wanted to start making the mosquito a behavioral genetic model to understand how mosquitoes find humans. So I was like, well, I love genetics. I want to do behavior. This seemed like a great opportunity. But at the time, we didn't really know how to make a mutant mosquito. So that was my job. That sounds really cool and very hard, but interesting. So I saw that you're working on a lot of very exciting projects. And one of the projects that immediately sparked my interest on your website is you call it using genetics to make a life-saving perfume. I thought that was really interesting. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that project and what you're trying to achieve with that? So what we're trying to do is to identify the key ways that mosquitoes smell humans. And if we do that, I believe we can use those genes to design a new repellent that is more effective, more pleasant to use, longer lasting than our current repellents like DEET, which is the most effective repellent we have. So basically, the focus is to find a set of olfactory receptors that are critical for mosquitoes to find people and to develop new volatiles, new odors that can disrupt 
this deadly behavior. And the idea is, if you can disrupt mosquitoes biting people by making people, let's say, invisible or making people unappealing to mosquitoes, you could protect them from the transmission of disease. Right. And you said the current repellents that are being used right now, what are the issues with that? If you look at how well they work, do they not work well? Or Well, DEET does work, but it also needs to be reapplied often. It's not very long lasting. And in a lot of conditions where people are out for a long time, they don't want to be constantly reapplying DEET. So the other thing is it does have an odor and it could be more effective. So, for example, when I think about a life-saving perfume, which would be this new repellent, I think about maybe an odor that could protect a room or a space, something that may not necessarily need to be applied directly to your skin. And that's one of the interesting things about DEET is that it needs to be applied to your skin to work really well. So DEET in and of itself doesn't really do that much. Somehow it mixes with your odor and we believe it confuses the mosquito into thinking that you're something that you're not. Right. That's very interesting. You know, I'm a big believer in basic science, and I think that in order to understand this behavior, we need to work on using genetics to figure out what are the key genes that regulate mosquito host-seeking behavior. And by understanding how they find us, it might lead us to new solutions to block their deadly disease-transmitting behavior. And are you working on that project mostly with your team or are you collaborating with others on that project? Well, I would say that it's a big project that there's a number of labs that are working on it. My team is definitely working on it. We identified last year an important olfactory co-receptor that is important for mosquitoes to smell human sweat. They love our sweat, particularly when it's metabolized by our skin bacteria. So understanding how that pathway worked was a big moment in my lab. And we're building upon that work to try to really drill down and see exactly how this IR8A pathway senses the acidic volatiles and human odor like lactic acid. Right. And did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment in your research? Well, all of this requires us to have genetics. And when I started my postdoc with Leslie, there was no genetics in the mosquito. So I needed to figure out a way to do it, right? And so I was a Drosophila person. So I was like, so what are the new techniques in Drosophila? And one of the things was emerging at the time was zinc finger nucleases. Now, zinc finger nucleases are this genome editing reagent that takes zinc fingers that are found in a lot of regulatory proteins that regulate transcription, things like this, that allow the protein to bind to DNA. 
So what people did is rearrange these binding motifs so that they could program where a nuclease would land in the genome. So I thought that that would be a good approach to try to disrupt a gene specifically. You have to realize this was before CRISPR and genome editing was a very new thing. So we had to figure out First of all, could it work in our hands? And second of all, would it really work at all? So we had to tweak it to some extent to move the technology from Drosophila to the mosquito. And one of the ways that you introduce reagents like this, like genome editing reagents in insects, is you inject their embryos. And luckily, a lot of work had already been done showing how you could make transgenics in the mosquito. So you could micro-inject their embryos with these tiny little needles under a microscope and then put in nucleic acids and alter the genome of the mosquito, but only randomly. So you could randomly insert a transgene somewhere in their genome. So we knew that, but we did not know that our genome editing reagent would work, first of all. Second of all, we needed a way to screen for our mutations. And that is not an easy feat where you don't have any of the amazing genetic tools that are available on the fly. So fly genetics is sort of like a visual language. You learn all the different markers, different eye colors, their curly wings or straight wings, different body colors, different bristle numbers, and you spend your life looking under a microscope at the subtle distinctions of how these flies look. And through that, you can figure out, let's say if you have a linked gene that's linked to a particular visual marker, you can follow it very easily through the generations. The mosquito doesn't have that. And the mosquito I use is Aedes aegypti. But it does have some different advantages. And we're also in an era where you can use molecular genotyping to follow what was going on. So this was in 2009, which I guess is not that long ago, but maybe it is long ago. I don't know. But at that time, Illumina was called Selexa. So what I thought was using this new sequencing platform, which now the whole world uses all the time, to barcode families that could potentially contain the mutation. So we made polygamous families of six. And the thing is about mosquitoes is that you have to blood feed them so you can control when each generation occurs. And then they lay eggs. So then you can sacrifice the adults and genotype them. And then you can figure out, okay, this family has a certain percentage of mutated alleles. Those sequences look interesting to us. We'll pursue this family. Then you hatch that egg paper. And then what you do is that you use more simple genotyping to actually figure out which of those individuals contain the mutation that you're interested in. And then the simple genotyping I used was basically a fluorescent PCR being run on a capillary gel electrophoresis. 
And you need to just see very small base pair changes because sometimes we have an allele, let's say Orco 5, and I name the alleles for the number of base pairs that the ZFN deleted. So you have to be able to detect a five base pair difference between wild type and your mutant. And you have to be able to detect that in a heterozygous situation for a lot of the time until you breed them, until you get a homozygous mutant line. And then once you get there, you just check your stocks every so often and make sure that everything's fine. So sometimes you have a really specific question you want to ask. And the traditional model systems that you have, let's say Drosophila, the mouse, C. elegans, zebrafish, these systems cannot address this. For example, we wanted to understand how mosquitoes find their human hosts. This cannot be done in Drosophila very simply. So we wanted to create the mosquito that is totally fascinated with us, Aedes aegypti, that loves our blood and lives in our communities. We wanted to turn that into a model organism. So genome editing techniques are really a great way of doing this. But for each system, you have to tweak the injection of the reagents, the way that you screen for mutations. You have to think about the generation time. How do they reproduce? For example, now, one of the big questions in the tropical world is what are we going to do about coral bleaching? It's a major problem. And so corals are cnidarians, and they are a very interesting group. Many of them are symbiotic. So they are part animal, in a sense, part algae. And they have symbionts living in them. So one species that you can culture in the lab relatively easily is Cassiopeia. So Cassiopeia is this upside down jellyfish that basically pulses and it feeds on little shrimp and all these little things that are in the environment. And they're actually local to here in South Florida, which is kind of cool. But they also contain symbiodinium, which provides some nutrients to them. So they're basically feeding like an animal. And then also inside of them, they have symbionts doing photosynthesis. So why is this important? So what happens when the corals bleach is that the symbionts, the little algae-like things that are providing this sunlight-based nutrition to the coral, they hit the road. So we need a system to understand the basic biology behind how symbiosis is established in coral and how it is disrupted by bleaching. So like I said before, when you got a new question, sometimes you need a new genetic system. And now with CRISPR, we can convert systems that we can grow well in the lab into little mini drosophilas. We can give them the ability to tell us what their genes are doing by using CRISPR. And currently, we are trying to do this with Cassiopeia. And I'm really hopeful that we will get germline transmission of our mutation soon. That's very interesting. 
So I guess one thing that I thought would be interesting is when you're developing these new methods, like how long do things take for you? How long does it take to develop the new method for adopting a method from Drosophila to mosquitoes? What's kind of like a normal time span for those kind of things? I mean, some of it depends on the generation time of the organism, but to get initial preliminary results that your method is working in both cases with Aedes aegypti, the mosquito I study, and the Nidarian Cassiopeia, it's taken about a year to sort of get the first evidence that our modification of the technique is actually working. Right. Wow. So you have to be very patient. I think that with genetics, you have to be patient. A year to me does not seem that long. I think each discipline kind of has its own time scale. Luckily, I don't work on corn where, you know, you just have the growing season to deal with, right? And what if there's like a hurricane and your cornfield is destroyed or whatever? You know what I'm saying? The generation time of Aedes aegypti is about three weeks. So you can really get somewhere. I guess the optimization of the techniques takes time because you do these initial control experiments. You're trying to make sure everything is going in the right direction. And during that year, you're getting signals that you're moving in the right direction. So when I say it takes about a year to know, that means that we're pretty certain that this is going to work. I don't mind waiting. Okay. <laughs> And I guess you're right. If you compare it with other disciplines, actually, the time is relatively short. I had a question about some other experiments, and this is different experiments, but I saw some videos of your lab when you are conducting these experiments. I guess once you have the mutants, you want to test what it did to them and how they behave. But essentially, you have these two boxes that are separated by like a net, and then the mosquitoes are on one side of the box, and then someone's arm is on the other side. And then I saw like the mosquitoes flying toward the net. How do you ensure that these experiments are reproducible? Do you try to always do it with the same person's arm or do you have to like keep things in mind? Do mosquitoes behave differently, whether it's like a male person putting their arm in or female? Or is there anything like that that you have to keep in mind? Any factors like that? So in that experiment that you saw, we were testing DEET. And we were seeing whether the orco mutant mosquitoes would be repelled by DEET. And they weren't which was kind of an amazing result. So we just did that with a few subjects. And we just did a DEET arm and a solvent-treated arm and did those comparisons. In later work that I've done, we have done more subjects. And what we have noticed is that mosquitoes, they do have different preferences for people. So there's some people that mosquitoes like more than others. So we try to eliminate some factors that could affect us. So we try to ask our subjects not to shower the day of the experiment. And we ask them not to use cosmetics. We ask them to not use perfumes, anything that they're going to especially put on their arm. So A lot of the work we do now, we use this uniport olfactometer, and basically you have mosquitoes on one end, and then you have the arm on the other, and it's a long tube, an acrylic tube. 
So the mosquitoes can fly up, go into a little chamber, but not actually bite the person, but they can be near the arm. And using this, we can quantitate the level of attraction that a genotype or wild type or different species of mosquitoes have to a human. So there's definitely subject variation. And there's, that's something that we try to control for as much as possible. Right. I think that's very interesting. So you mentioned earlier already that there are quite a number of challenging things when you are developing methods for a new organism. But Just to summarize again, what do you see are some of the most challenging parts when you are working with or developing methods for mosquitoes or developing mosquito genetics in the lab? You have to know the life cycle of the organism really well and its advantages and disadvantages. For example, Aedes aegypti can diapause, so they can stay as eggs and they won't hatch until you put the eggs into water and they can last several months like this. This is an advantage for genetics, let's say. You should choose the model based upon some of its characteristics in terms of its life cycle. Is it easy to grow in the lab? Is it easy to do the behavior or whatever experiment you want to do? In the end, I think the other thing is if you know that this organism has the qualities that you want to do your experiments in the lab, you need patience and you just have to keep trying until you get the genetics to work. There is a chance that it may not work, but... So far, for most animals that have been done, we're seeing that CRISPR works incredibly well. And I think if you have a specific question out there, don't be afraid to modify a new organism to help you address it. That's great. And our last question, as always, is a fun question. And it's if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that would make your life as a researcher easier or in general would make the lives of researchers easier, what would that be? Just one. If I had just had to pick <laughs> one tool that would make my life as a researcher easier, that's kind of like a hard thing. You could also have two. Or three. Okay. Uh, I think... I would love to have an automatic genotyping machine that you could put, let's say, frozen tissue into one part of the machine. It extracts the DNA, then genotypes, and then interprets all of that data in one machine and rapidly. So it would save my lab a lot of time and perhaps something like this there's a lot of things to help along this i think we're moving more in this direction it'll probably be there but i would love to just sort of have a one-stop shop for genotyping that can go from sample to data i would even wait a day as long as it would save my people a lot of time that sounds super cool i like that idea <laughs> hopefully one day we'll have that I think it might. I mean, there are these things that sort of like speed up and automate the DNA part already. Right. So I think the other thing is that we just need something that will do the genotyping and analysis together with it. And then maybe that would complete the package. I guess, I don't know, maybe one machine is asking too much. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I think that would be awesome. Hopefully somebody will make it. Uh, hopefully someone out there is listening. <laughs> And we'll yeah. make this thing for us because there's a lot of people who are doing genotyping out there. 
Right. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Oh my God, it's been so much fun, Anita. I am so thankful that you invited me on. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.